Uh, first of all, a huge thank you to the Claire Booth Loose Policy Institute for sponsoring today's talk. They said, yes, huge applause for the Claire Booth Loose Policy Institute. Uh, they've been really helpful in this class for the last several semesters in bringing us speakers, and I'm very appreciative. And our speaker today is making our first appearance, hopefully, of many of this class. We have Ying Ma here today, who's right over here. Uh, Ying was the Deputy Policy Director and Deputy Communications Director for the Ben Carson for President campaign in 2016. <laughs> For those of you who don't read, he didn't win, but he's now in the uh, cabinet. She uh, also has been a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations. She's the author of this memoir, Chinese Girl in the Ghetto, which uh, is all about her growing up right here in Oakland, California. She's currently a contributor to the Washington Examiner a graduate of Cornell where she studied government, and Stanford Law School. Please welcome Ying Ma. Um, I 
hated the sound of gunshots outside of my window on a regular basis. And I hated the sight of teenagers getting jumped outside of my bedroom window. Um, and I hated the fear of being assaulted if I were to take a walk down my neighborhood streets after dark. And I hated the smell of urine downtown and the aggressiveness of panhandlers who threatened to accost you if you didn't hand over your wallet. With even more passion, I hated the failure of law enforcement to protect the innocent. I hated finding out that my relatives were robbed at gunpoint or punched in the face. This happened actually um, far more regularly than I wanted. I hated it when teenage hooligans ran up to my father uh, when he pulled up in his car at a stop sign and made, a, made the mistake of leaving his windows rolled down. And so teenage hooligans ran up to him and just beat him through the window for a while. I was out of town that day and didn't find out until much later. Um, what I learned growing up in the inner city was that you take nothing for granted. And if you want to get out, you better give it everything you got. Um, there are lots of people who tell you that you deserve this, you're entitled to that. You're, deserve nothing and you're entitled to nothing. Now, I was reminded of Oakland's dysfunction and its lawlessness recently by its current mayor, Libby Schaaf. She got into a national spat with President Trump, in fact, on the issue of immigration. And the president, ever so gracious, called her a disgrace on Twitter. It actually, I think he did it in person. He, he called her that um, in front of a bunch of reporters. Now, this would, and most of you probably already know this. Um, this was in late, because in late February, she decided to warn the public about impending immigration and customs enforcement rates against illegal immigrants in her city. And as a result, ICE says that over 850 criminal aliens eluded their suite. Woo! Shows the brazen disregard 
that Mayor Shab has for the rule of law. It is also a slap in the face to those of us who made sacrifices, who jumped through bureaucratic hurdles, and waited in line to immigrate to this country legally. <clears throat> now, I'm not really here uh, just to talk about Mayor Shaft. Um, you guys live a lot closer to her city. Uh, you know, you have a lot of work in contact with her residents, but I think <clears throat> it's worth mentioning simply because it is indicative of the state of our national debate and our national discussion about immigration. In the toxicity of our current political discourse, you are often labeled a racist or a xenophobe. If all you want is better border security, and if you don't believe in amnesty for illegal immigrants, and if you want to reduce or reform legal immigration. Um, this is a topic that has been quite um, talked about. Uh, it's a topic that's been much talked about in Washington and across the country. No doubt it's a topic that's going to repeatedly come up during the elections this year as well as in 2020. A lot of people in those discussions simply accuse the president <coughs> of being a racist. Uh, it's become quite popular, the thing to do. A far better question to ask, actually, is have politicians, politicians like Libya, become so wrapped up in their own vanity, in their own rhetoric, and in their own political bias that they've simply forgotten that their first responsibility is actually to the people that they represent? And have they forgotten about the people they swore to protect? In the end, the American people are the ones who should and who do get to decide who come to their country and stay in their country, this country, just as the legal residents of Oregon are the ones who deserve the full protection of the city's law enforcement authority. There is a fundamental difference between legal and illegal immigration, and unfortunately, in our current national debate, that difference is often sort of cast aside or dismissed, and proponents of illegal immigration always like to conflate legal versus illegal immigration. As it turns out, some of the most fervent opponents of legal, illegal immigration are those who came here legally. Um, I think this campus has lots of legal immigrants. I grew up around here, has a lot of friends who went to, the U, went to school in the UC system, as well as specifically here at Cal. Um, I think most of you are not strangers to legal immigrants or even illegal immigrants, but what is true is that this country has a legal immigration process in place for a reason. And numerous individuals from around the world follow that system out of respect for our rule of law. They make huge sacrifices. They incur heavy financial costs. They jump through a lot of hurdles. And most of all, they wait in line. Um, now, before I go on, I'm just curious, how many of you are legal immigrants to this country? Yeah, quite a few. Um, one of the things that, um, that I, I think a lot of people are not willing to talk about is that amnesty for those who have violated U.S. immigration laws not only rewards bad behavior, it creates a moral hazard, it dishonors and dismisses the persistence and sacrifice of legal immigrants. When illegal immigrants in America proudly call themselves immigration rights activists, and they grant interviews to the New York Times, they testify before Congress, they openly protest in the streets, and yet face no legal consequences whatsoever, 
They're spitting at America's rule of law, and we should not condone or encourage any of that. As I mentioned earlier, I happen to have come here as a legal immigrant. When I was young, I showed up in inner city Oakland when I was 10 years old. My parents had applied to immigrate to the United States from China when I was a kid, and we went through the process, we submitted our paperwork, and we waited. And after four years, we got to the front of the line. And the U.S. consulate in my hometown at the time told us that, oh, you know what? You might think that you've gotten to the front of the line, but that's not good enough. We actually want some additional documentation from you. And they wanted documentation of my mother's country of birth. My mother, actually, at the time, didn't have the documentation, but that was something that she disclosed to them. She didn't have a birth certificate because she was born in the chaos and poverty of Indonesia, a third world country. Um, and, uh, and it's actually not uncommon for children born in the third world not to have all kinds of documentations. But when we first applied to come to the United States, we made the proper disclosures, provided whatever documentation the U.S. consulate thought was proper, and we waited. But after we waited and got to the front of the line, the U.S. government decided that, well, actually, you know, never mind, that was not good enough. We now want you to provide that documentation. And so why don't you go back to Indonesia and get some affidavits from your friends and family to prove to us that you were, in fact, born in Indonesia. Now, at the time, my mother didn't know anybody in Indonesia anymore. Nevertheless, she tried to get the additional documentation that the U.S. consulate asked for. We had a pretty good feeling that we, it wasn't something that we could get. So it wasn't just because my mother didn't know anybody in Indonesia anymore, but even if she did, none of them knew what an affidavit was. And so, but we tried getting what the U.S. consulate wanted anyway, because this was what America had asked us to do. And this went on and on and on. This whole process went on for quite some time, about nine months. And we still couldn't actually get the documentation that the consulate wanted. And so finally, the consulate relented and offered us a different way to follow the rules to come to America. We ultimately was able to satisfy those new requirements. And then when that happened, we were able to hop on a plane and fly to the United States. And I would tell you that story not because our example is somehow so uh, traumatic. There are many, many more um, aspiring immigrants from around the world who wait far longer than we waited. Many people wait decades to reunite with their family to actually come here. Um, what I, the reason why I sort of mentioned that example is because there are lots of people who jump through a lot of hurdles. There are all kinds of hurdles that seem completely unreasonable to the people who are waiting in line trying to come to the United States. In our case, I remember there were so many occasions when my mother came home, and if I saw her crying in the living room, I knew that she had encountered another difficulty in trying to get the affidavits that the U.S. consulate asked her to get, and that she thought that we were one step removed from coming to the country that we wanted to come to. This is not the same as walking across the border or overstaying the visa. And I think we ought to be honest enough to distinguish between the two. This is 
does not mean that the people who come here illegally are bad people, but what it does mean is that there is a distinction we need to draw between legal and illegal immigration. And amnesty proponents are always talking about compassion. What about some compassion and some respect for those who do things the legal way? We've also been talking a lot about chain migration in recent months. Uh, this is a term that has become a hot topic, particularly in the era of uh, President Trump. President Trump and various members of Congress have proposed reducing illegal immigration through a number of ways, but one of the key ways is to abolish the extended family chain migration categories and the visa lottery. Now, as it turns out, I am actually a product of chain migration. Um, what this means is that people come to this country for the purpose of, of reunifying with their family members who are already here. My family loved China because we wanted a better life, one that we thought China could not grant. Um, there was a lot of hard work and a lot of hardship, but my entire family came sort of through that chain. We had an uncle who was able to apply on our, yeah, on our behalf over here in the U.S., and then our various family members applied from China, and so it, you know, my father came, his brothers came, uh, my grandparents came, and you know, a number of other family members came through different chains. And for those of you who are legal immigrants, you're probably pretty familiar with the idea. The, I think for a lot of legal immigrants who are here, it also helps to be honest about what chain migration is and what sort of costs it imposes on this country as well. My late grandmother, who um, in her 60s, I remember, used to ride the bus for over an hour just to go babysit for somebody so she could earn a few bucks. And she used to go through all kinds of unfamiliar neighborhoods without really speaking too many words in English. And I used to worry about her going to all those, going through all those places, and I used to worry that what if the bus broke down? What would she do? But despite all her hard work, as soon as her papers were in order, she went on Medicaid. And as some of you know, that's called Medi-Cal here in the state of California. And whatever taxes she might have paid into the system, I guarantee you it did not even come close to exceeding the government subsidies that she received legally before she passed away. I have plenty of relatives who arrived as adults who didn't speak English, and they worked as able-bodied men and women day and night, and many of them did not go on welfare when they were capable of working. But they retired as soon as they became eligible for Social Security and Medicare, or perhaps even other services. And with even all their hard work, they too will derive more benefits from the government in fact, in 2016, there was a study by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine that reported that on average, a non-elderly adult immigrant without a high school degree will cost the United States $231,000. And that cost takes into account the government benefits that this immigrant would receive minus the taxes paid. And that's something we need to be a lot more honest about. If Americans decide that they are okay paying the cost in exchange for the can-do spirit of immigrants, in exchange for the 
ambiguity of their children and in exchange for the dynamism that the immigrant population brings to this country, that's great. But I think oftentimes the cost of that immigration is not clearly delineated. And oftentimes we don't even think about the cost of immigrants not assimilating properly into this country. But if we purely look at the financial cost, um, one figure, figure I cited earlier was $231,000 for an adult immigrant who does not have a high school degree. And so if we think about all the wonderful elderly relatives who come here to reunite with us, if we think about our friends and family who come here without a whole lot of skills, and we think about the cost that they're going to impose on the state budget, the government, federal budget, I think that's something we need to be a lot more honest about. And all of a sudden, the suggestion to abolish chain migration doesn't actually look so racist after all. So, um, you know, we could talk also a little bit more about another, uh, one category of people who come up a lot in the immigration debate, and those are the dreamers. Um, I'm happy to take any questions about them. Um, you don't want to, I think, that particular issue sort of speaks for itself. Um, obviously, the group of people who are far more sympathetic, um, uh, who, who are much more sympathetic targets than others. However, one thing I would, I would point out is that when people say that there are young people who come to this country through no fault of their own, I would point out a few things. Um, one is that young people, if they're kids, oftentimes do a lot of things through no fault of their own. If their parents decide to commit a crime, if their parents decide not to pay their bills, if their parents decide to go live in a bad neighborhood, the kids do pay the consequences. In our society, there are realities of their responsibilities that children often bear because of the decisions of their parents. And somehow, it seems a little bit strange that in the immigration scenario, all of these responsibilities and all of these realities somehow often go straight out the window. Um, it's a little bit strange. Uh, I think people ought to be a little bit more honest about that, too. Additionally, people often say that children come to this country um, and, you know, and they come here through no fault of their own. I think those in the immigrant community, those who've gone through the immigrant experience, many of us also know that children, in fact, are oftentimes the primary impetus for people to go to a new country, to make sacrifices, to, in fact, um, work really hard, uh, and to delay gratification on lots of other things. And it's because a lot of parents are trying to build a better future for their children. And so it is, in fact, not accurate to say that children are simply innocent bystanders. Bystanders in some kind of crime. Um, they are oftentimes the reason for that crime. And so what we're trying to do is to, is to prevent further illegal immigration. And what we're trying to do is to find incentives for people not to commit um, the crime of illegal immigration. And I think we need to actually acknowledge that children are not innocent bystanders in this whole process. During the 2016 election, um, we heard a lot about sovereignty. On the campaign trail, this was something that President Trump talked a lot about, even though he never used the word sovereignty. What he said was, we either have a country or we don't. Voters who supported him understood that he was 
time to uncontrollable illegal immigration from the southern border, um, to illegal immigrants who believe that they were entitled to remain in the United States even if the law said otherwise, and to politicians from both parties who cowered before identity politics rather than offer viable solutions. Just look at the mayor of Oakland. So in unmistakable terms, President Trump was defending America's sovereignty to control its borders and to control who enters its lands. Um, in many ways, the policies we've seen from his administration, the policies that we've seen from his allies in Congress, have reflected that concept, the concept of sovereignty, the concept of controlling what a, um, what a democratic country ought to allow onto its soil. And ultimately, citizenship, even and even legal status, is something that needs to be earned. It's not something that should be just doled away like a welfare program or a government subsidy because it is far too precious and we should never forget that. So whether we're talking about immigration reform or lawlessness in Oakland, I think we need to remember that when we ignore or disrespect the rule of law and we think that it's merely a laughing matter, there's nothing laughable about it at all. If we disrespect the rule of law out of political correctness or political expediency, it is the law abiding who suffer. When we walk around with jingoistic accusations of racism and xenophobia, we fail to ask the tough questions of what policies would actually do for ordinary people. So whatever your viewpoints are, don't be afraid to speak out. Don't be afraid to disagree with your peers. Don't be afraid to advocate for solutions that might not be popular, particularly in this part of the country. And don't be afraid to actually hold viewpoints that you don't know too many other of your friends might hold. Um, you actually might just end up being the person who's right. So thank you. And if you'd like to find out more about my work, you can find me online at gatesonline.org. I'm um, happy to take questions at this point. Right here in the front. Okay, so um, you said that immigrants are costing a lot of money, and you mentioned that like each immigrant that comes into the U.S. illegally costs like two hundred something thousand dollars. You can't hear them. Um, we'll repeat the question. Relax. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, and you also said we have to be honest about like what they're costing. So, with that in mind, does that like analysis saying that they contribute or that they? that we lose $200,000 per illegal immigrant, does that include like what they give back to the economy, like how they contribute and like the labor they give and all of that? <coughs> yeah, so, so the question was, given that I cited the figure earlier about uh, how much a, um, it, how much particular specific immigrants might cost to the economy, I think you were asking, does that, does that figure include what they might contribute to the economy as well? So just to clarify, the figure I cited refer, uh, refers to immigrants who are not high school graduates. Um, and it's important because the, for a lot of people who are proponents of immigration reform, um, those who propose ending the category of, um, of chain migration, type of immigration. What they propose is not ending legal immigration altogether. What they propose is to bring more high-skilled laborers into the country and to actually um, reduce, drastically reduce the number of people who are low-skilled laborers, for instance, people who do not have 
college degrees. And so, and, and the distinction is important because um, the, the costs that we're talking about, in fact, the, the figure I just cited, it includes, it takes into account the taxes that this person might pay into the U.S. Treasury. Um, and, and, and so it's the net cost of, you know, what the government might pay out to them over a lifetime versus, yeah, and, and it takes into account the, the amount that they will have paid into the government. Obviously, every person is different, but, but I think the key about that figure is it is about the cost that low-skill laborers might actually impose on the U.S. economy, whereas the belief is that high-skill laborers would actually be able to control. So you ended your talk with the phrase, uh, we disrespect we, we, we the law because of, like, we disrespect the law because of political expediency. Do you think that's a two-way street? Because, I mean, I can give you an example of, like, Mayor Garland, for example. Political expediency, Republicans violated the rule of law. Do you think, I just, my question is, do you think it's a two-way street, or do you think it's just uh, people on the left that are using it to get political expediency? I'm sorry, who, who are you talking about that violated the rule of law? I mean, the senator is the problem. How did Mitch McConnell violate the law? That's, there's nothing illegal about that. Uh, there is. It's under rules of democracy. I give you a book on democracy's die. <laughs> that's that's that, that book is not in the U.S. Constitution. Anyway, but I get your point. I mean, we don't need to. We don't need to belabor that. I think politicians from both parties oftentimes do a lot of things that are politically expedient. Um, in fact, one of the reasons that President Trump. Um, resonate with so many voters in the last election, including many voters who voted for Barack Obama twice, was because he was not just campaigning against Democrats, he wasn't just campaigning against Hillary Clinton, he wasn't just campaigning against the Obama legacy, he was often campaigning also against the Republican establishment. And, um, and I think also the political revolution that he created and led was one that was railing against the political establishment in general, it went up against the corruption of Washington and how politicians often just do things the politically expedient way um, for their own political gain. So it's, I, I absolutely agree with you that, although I don't agree with your specific example, that politicians on both sides oftentimes do things for political gain, for sure. Now on the immigration issue, however, I think that what we've seen is that the people on the left uh, uh, Democratic Party leaders tend to be the ones who are big proponents of sanctuary cities, sanctuary states, of not actually enforcing federal immigration laws against illegal immigrants. Uh, they are also the same people who are key proponents of a path to amnesty for illegal immigrants who are here. Um, and oftentimes it's not hard to actually decipher their motives, and it's because they will be shut down the road. Those who will receive amnesty will likely kind of constitute a huge voting block for the Democratic Party. Um, there are plenty of Republicans who subscribe to some of those views as well, uh, but I think it's actually quite clear that this is an issue that where if you're talking about the failure to observe or to uphold um, federal immigration laws, that failure arises far more from the left. Europe, but there's like still 
the same like, issues that come up with immigration? Yeah. Um, Can you kind of repeat that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the question was, um, since I talked about the distinction between legal and illegal immigration, um, what you know, what did I think about refugees coming to this country, especially since the U.S. has taken in fewer refugees compared to countries in Europe? Um, I, I think um, what so so um, obviously the United States has had a long history of taking in refugees from other countries. I think what's become incredibly controversial, particularly in the last election, is the president's um, unwillingness to take <coughs> refugees from Syria, and I think the rhetoric used surrounding that, as well as some of his um, some of his travel bans um, uh, since he's entered into office. I think those are the things that have become quite controversial. And um, let me just back up to kind of explain where this is all coming from. And the president isn't the only person who has advocated restrictions of refugee, refugees entering the U.S. from war-torn places like Syria. And the reason is that because these refugees come from terror-prone countries, uh, and because the FBI director has made clear that actually we don't have any good ways of vetting these people entering into our country, and because we and because we simply do not have the capacity, and, they, and the refugees do not have the documentation to show us who they are, or that or that they in fact are people who might be safe entering this country, we simply cannot take the risk, um, the risk that they might perpetrate terrorist acts on American citizens by allowing them in, and in fact ISIS. Um, 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 at, during its heyday, has in fact promised that they or or threatened to use the refugee system to enter into Western democracies and to perpetrate terrorism in those countries, and, and that's the and so I think that's where the restrictive rhetoric and the restrictive policies on these refugees are coming from. I don't think it refers to all refugees, but I think what is most sensitive um, really are refugees from terror. Now, when it comes to Europe, um, Europe has let in lots of refugees from Syria. Uh, it, is, it has become a huge problem for Europe. Um, there, um, it not only has created problems that have um, um, uh, that have been, you know, that, that have sort of tore at, uh, at various European countries' social fabric. You know, because for some smaller European countries or certain smaller societies, it's just hard to accept so many strangers of a different culture, a different religion, different socioeconomic class, all of a sudden. But besides that, Europe has experienced a lot of terror attacks since the refugee waves, and they haven't quite figured out how to deal with it. Um, you know, I think a lot of European leaders felt that they were doing the compassionate thing by accepting refugees from Syria, but I think lots of citizens of Europe have decided that, um, that they are quite sick and tired of the policies of their leaders have implemented, and they want more security, they want more safety, and they don't believe that what their leaders have provided them is a path to either of those things. All the way in the back. Hello. Hi. Uh, have you donated any amount of your time or money directly to the city of Oakland to make the economic realities of impoverished communities in your hometown better? I spent a lot of time making sure that my own family was 
own family did not end up on the streets. Uh, my parents don't really speak English very well. And so unlike a lot of people who are born with a silver spoon in their mouth, um, I actually had a fair amount to do. So you know, if my parents were sick, I took them to the hospital. Um, if they had a parking ticket they needed to dispute, I ended up doing that for them. If somebody, excuse me, let me finish. Um, don't yell out. Or leave. Um, if somebody discriminated against them um, because of their race, which happened fairly often in Oakland, I was the one who spoke out on their behalf. Um, there are other family members from time to time that we stuck together and did things like that for. I think that um, that was my way of making sure that that family, you know, that my family stays intact in Oakland and that we didn't create more problems for the city than it already had. Now, what else did I do? I spent a lot of time trying to get out of the city because it isn't exactly fun to hear gunshots outside of your window when you're watching TV. It isn't exactly fun to show up on campus and find out that a number of your fellow students were carrying guns and might shoot you. Um, and what do you, and, and, and when there was a good mayoral candidate that came around who promised to make changes to Oakland, that man's name actually happened, happened to be Jerry Brown. I voted for him, and even though he was a man from a different party, and he cleaned up Oakland in a way that a lot of other mayors have not been willing to do. Um, what does that mean? It means that when a city is so broken and so dysfunctional, there are several different things that its residents can do. Number one, they can choose to survive, and there are all kinds of things that they can do to, to try to survive, which is one, if somebody says something racial, racially insensitive or racially discriminatory against you, and if they're bigger than you, and if they might likely, they are likely to have a gun, you get the hell out of this space. Number two, you leave the city because this city is unsafe, it is disgusting, it often has mayors who refuse to protect you, its law enforcement often fails miserably. That is one way to go about it. You leave. Um, if for those people who stick around and who actually, you know, donate to homeless shelters, who, um, who um, actually provide money to the city, great for them. Um, I'm very happy for them. I hope that they're not continuing to get mugged, and I hope that their relatives are not getting beaten, and I hope that nobody's pointing a gun to their face on a regular basis. Let's go back, uh, back there. Yeah, you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, um, sure. The question was, I had uh, mentioned the cost of assimilation, and, and um, as a student, wanted to know what I believed um, assimilation actually was. Um, um, you know, I, I think it's a very rich topic for sure. Thank you for bringing it up. Um, you know, I, I, I think that when immigrants come to this country, um, they certainly don't need to give up their own culture. They don't need to give up who they are. But ultimately, over time, you know, the concept of assimilation is that they become part of America, you know, our society, our culture, and, and in fact, learning to speak English is one of the key ways. Um, um, I, I think part of the problem is that there are a lot of places um, in America these days, there are a lot of communities where that assimilation isn't so um, crucial anymore. I mean, I, you know, there are communities where you don't need to speak English, um, and, and I'm not targeting any particular community in general, but I think that, you know, even within the Asian community, I see 
um, who don't need to actually learn the language. Um, now, you know, and then when it comes to all, all the other intangibles of being a citizen of this country, of being an American, you know, they go from every, everything from believing in the ideals of this country, believing in the democratic ideals, and, um, you know, it's a whole gamut of things. It, 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 sometimes it ranges from, you know, even just uh, having appreciation for our national pastime to the way you interact with your neighbors. Um, I, I think ultimately the concept really is about sort of becoming an American. Um, unfortunately, I think there are lots of political pressures these days that cast different people by their race, uh, by their ethnicity, and, and as a result, um, that people tend to see themselves through those lenses instead of through the lens of being an unhydrated American. On the aisle. Hi, um, my name is Tasha. Um, I'm the daughter of an undocumented immigrant. Um, and I wanted to ask you about <laughs> your thoughts on one of the biggest policy proposals that our president has given us, which is the wall. Do you think it's an effective way to study what you call legal immigration, or is it more symbolic? Like, what are your thoughts on the wall? I believe we should build the wall. Um, however, <laughs> however, um, it's not going to be a physical wall in every place. Um, I mean, I think certain parts of our border have natural barriers, for instance. You know, if there's river there, we're obviously not going to build a wall there. Um, there are also other places um, with, or with existing double or triple layer fencing. Um, and if that has proven to be effective over time to deter illegal immigration, um, you know, we can think about whether it's, it's necessary to actually build a brand new structure there. You know, that's my personal opinion. I think there are, um, you, you have to, on that specific front, you'd have to ask people in the administration. But I would say, generally, the wall is both symbolic um, as well as practical. It is symbolic in the sense that it tells the president's opponents as well as his supporters that he is serious about deterring illegal immigration. It's practical in the sense that, as the president has said, on many occasions walls do work. Um, you know, just add a couple of my security details here today are from Israel. Um, and the president likes to say, just ask Israel if the wall, if building the wall actually has uh, decreased terrorism for them. Um, there is a question about how to build it, how effectively to build it, how and, and how cost-effective it can be, but absolutely we should go ahead and build the wall. And, and let me say one other thing. Um, you know, I, I um, so I grew up in Oakland, and so I never went around asking my friends, are you an illegal immigrant or are you legal? It doesn't happen that way. In our in our day-to-day -day lives, um, in our personal interactions, somebody is your friend or, or not your friend, not because they're here legally or illegally, and I have lots of neighbors who most likely were illegal, um, you know, and, and lots of um, people who sort of went through and were toiling day and night just like my parents did. So I think on a personal level, you don't really ask that question, but I think on a policy level, you absolutely have to ask that question because Laws mean something. A rule of law has to mean something. And so certainly I'm sure you're friends with a number of a number of the students in this classroom as well as, well as elsewhere. But somehow the fact that you're, one of your parents is illegally got a round of applause 
just tells us how little respect there is for the rule of law. Um, it's just because your parent is single doesn't mean she's a bad person. Um, nobody's saying that, but her being here illegal does break our law. And the fact that you can go out there and actually flaunt that is spitting in the face of America's legal immigration system. Um, now, I'm not going to go call. Now, that's actually hard. The fact that people are celebrating, violating, and in fact, dismissing U.S. federal immigration laws, um, spitting in the face of America's rule of law, um, that is highly problematic. And you're at one of the top universities in the country. What kind of future leader are you going to be for this country? Um, and if we, if we want to ask, there was a gentleman earlier who asked me about assimilation. Well, of course, I mean, I can see why there are all kinds of people who are not assimilated, because nobody believes in these concepts of rule of law anymore. There is no respect for the concept of America. And so somehow, you know, all of these things actually add up quite a bit to the point where we have problems with legal immigration, to the point where we have problems with assimilation. Uh, Sprite's right here. Yeah, um, you mentioned earlier about kind of like more skilled people should be able to come into the United States, but don't you think that limiting immigration, and we can argue till we're blue in the face about how many people could immigrate or like should the DACA people be able to stay or whatnot. Um, my question is really about, doesn't the premise of only letting in skilled workers, like isn't that a violation of the American creed and the no. American dream? Because, because isn't the point, like you're supposed to be able to come here or be nobody, be nothing, and build yourself into something by using and contributing to America. Um, I, you know, um, to a certain extent, I, I think that um, I, I certainly kind of identify with that. Um, you know, because my family came here and had um, We didn't speak English, which is why we lived in a poor part of town, and which is why we lived in an unsafe part of town. And, you know, and there are lots of immigrants, as you described, who came here with nothing. And one of the virtues of that is that they had very little to eat, and so they were willing to risk it, um, whether by being entrepreneurial, whether by working hard in school, whether by, um, you know, applying themselves to become scientists, to become successful for professionals, to become, you know, people who contribute to the American society. So there are plenty of immigrants who do that. And, and as I said earlier, they, and, and as a result, immigrants like that contribute to the dynamism of our economy. However, as I um, also said, we are a democratic country. Um, sovereignty matters in the sense that we exercise that sovereignty through our elected representatives. And hence, we get to choose who comes to this country. Um, and, and so the American people have chosen a leader who believes that high-skilled labor is something that is advantageous to this country. It's not, you know, a lot of people say it's kind of a racist concept. Um, it is not. So countries like Canada, countries like Australia, advanced Western democracies have highly functional immigration systems. And, and what they do is they don't have chain migration. Um, um, or they have a very limited version of it. What they do have is that they go out of their way to recruit people who are particularly attractive for the 21st century economy. Um, and so even in the President's, so the President Trump's uh, proposal, 
what you see is that he emphasizes um, he emphasizes uh, getting high school labor, but even in the proposal that he put forth, um, he was going to allow all those people who are currently in line, I think there are about 4 million of them, who are sort of party to this chain migration category, uh, for them to come here and actually get through the line. It would probably take them about 20 years or so. So this is not a process that's going to sort of ease its way out immediately, besides the difficulty of the past, so that moment was still at a standstill. A big thank you to James for coming out here and talking to us.